you have a copy of God's Word, I would really encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 1 in your own Bible. Uh, And if you can, make your way down to verse 39. The book of Luke has some of the longest chapters in the Bible, uh, which I think is really funny because Luke had nothing to do with deciding where the chapter and verse markers were going to be. This is something that happened a long time after him. But you'll need to probably go about a page and a half uh, or scroll maybe three thumb scrolls if you're on your screen to get to where we want to be this morning. As you can see, things look a little different in the room today. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, and Advent is a four-week season of the global church calendar. If you want to use really fancy language, you could say the liturgical uh, Catholic church calendar, not uh, the Catholic church that's its own Roman Catholic thing, but the global church is what we mean when we say that sometimes. And for a lot of us, Advent probably means different things. I don't know the way that you were raised. Uh, Some of you may come from an Episcopalian or a Lutheran background where you guys took Advent so seriously that there were no Christmas decorations other than candles in the window all the way until Christmas Eve. Uh, Or maybe you didn't put your tree up until Christmas Eve, or at the very least, baby Jesus wasn't in the nativity until Christmas morning. You guys know that's why Jesus comes out of the nativity, right? It's not just because they needed to make, like, mass-produce it and they fit it together. The reason that nativity scenes are built that way is because in common Advent tradition, Jesus doesn't show up in the manger until he's arrived on Christmas morning. Very interesting. You probably didn't know that. It's the kind of thing that's sort of lost on us who learn Christmas from our culture instead of the church. Uh, Maybe you're like me. Maybe you grew up in a house where there was uh, something daily that your family did, a reading together, or there was an Advent calendar maybe that had scriptures behind little tearaway doors, or if your parents really loved you, there was chocolate behind those little tearaway doors. You know what I'm talking about? I don't even like chocolate, but I was very excited to celebrate Advent every year. At True North, this is what Advent means. Advent is a season of two things that may seem counterintuitive to each other, but I'm going to try to help you see from scripture how normal they ought to be in the life of the believer. Advent is about both remembering and anticipating Jesus. In other words, we believe that Jesus came and we believe that Jesus will come again. And so we live in that tension. We live in the space between those two fixed points, that Jesus is real, historical, did come, is God, is man, that's true, and that he promised to return and change a whole lot of stuff immediately, and that that's a coming point in time. It's not figurative language. It's not symbolic of cultural change. It's real. But we live in the tension between those two things. And so Advent is a chance once a year to reset and remember who Jesus was while trying to participate in the anticipation of the Bible, which all of the Old Testament and even some of the New Testament seems to build up waiting for the Savior to arrive. That reality is lost on you and I if we don't first participate in the waiting season. This year, our Advent theme is Songs of Christmas, and not the ones that we sang this morning, but specifically four songs that are in the first two chapters of the book of Luke. And so today, in the next three weeks, you'll hear us teach from the book of Luke, from chapters one and two, some songs, some rejoicing that breaks into the silence of human waiting in the days around Jesus' arrival on the earth as a baby boy. And God willing, you'll see in each of these songs testimony of what God has already done, But that testimony will ultimately point us to what God is going to do, the fulfillment of God's promises in the person of Christ. And so today we'll begin with what is known as the Magnificat, or Mary's song of rejoicing in Luke chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 39. We'll go through verse 45 and then talk about what's going on. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah, and she greeted Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth are married. Elizabeth is Mary's cousin, but is significantly older than Mary is. Mary is very likely in her teenage years here. We don't know how old Elizabeth is, but earlier in the book of Luke, Luke identifies Elizabeth as a woman of, uh, of age, if you will. 
And so Mary comes to visit Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, in other words, Mary sticks her head in the door and says, Elizabeth, it's me, Mary. When that happened, the baby leaped in her womb. And immediately Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Verse 42, and she exclaimed, she shouted out with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, Mary, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So by the 39th verse of Luke chapter 1, a lot has already happened. Zechariah and Elizabeth were chosen by God to be parents of a boy named John. John would be the very last prophet in Israel before Jesus arrived. And uh, we call him John the Baptist. That's probably what your ESV would refer to him as. Uh, a lot of Baptist churches refer to him as John the Baptist. Other traditions, you may have heard him called John the Baptizer. Because uh, you can't, you know, if you're Lutheran or Catholic or Methodist, you can't just give a guy like John to the Baptists, right? You can't teach that. It'd be like, why is he not John the Lutheran? Is there something wrong with us? He's got to be Baptist? But we are, so we can call him John the Baptist. Anyway, regardless, what he would do is baptize many people. And he would baptize with water in the Jordan River. He's kind of a rugged guy. He lived out in the wild. And I think he did that to make a cultural statement to the Pharisees, the class of people who were very serious about cleaning up their externals. But he would eventually baptize Jesus. Jesus would come into the water. John would sort of balk and go, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not a thing that I can do. And Jesus says, we have to do it in order to fulfill all righteousness. I have to obey my Father's will. And so Jesus is baptized. Shortly thereafter, John, who's still in Elizabeth's womb here in Luke chapter 1, John the man, would stand up against one of the King Herods in Israel because of the corruption of the Jewish royal family. And he would have his head cut off for that reason. He's just a noble guy, strong in the face of opposition, willing to stand for what was right and true, but to do it in a way that prepared the way for Jesus, not that caused people to become defensive and want to be away from Jesus because of John's reputation, but that drew them in and prepared them. And it's this baby boy with whom Elizabeth is just wrapping up her second trimester. And around the same time, Mary, the, Mary, the famous Mary, receives word from an angel that she's going to have a baby. The same exact process that Zechariah and Elizabeth just went through. The difference is Mary is unmarried, and she has not been asking God for a child at all. She's been asking God for a husband, and she's on her way to having one. The Bible uses the word betrothed, which is kind of like a blend between engagement and marriage without the sexual consummation piece yet. So it hasn't totally been bound together quite yet. Mary gets this news that she's going to be having this baby and the only person that she feels like she can even tell in her inner circle is her fiancé, Joseph, and probably because she has to tell him because they're already married to some degree, and very soon she's, he's going to see her naked body as they consummate their marriage, and he's going to realize she hasn't always had this particularly protruding stomach. Something's going on here, and there's only one way that that can happen to a person. I mean, imagine, if you will, this young teenage girl who not only has been given a child without having ever laid with a man sexually, but she's been told that the child is divine, is God's son. Do you think Mary can go to youth group on Thursday night and share that with her small group? Not very easily, right? There, people are going to listen, they'll react, but they're going to probably start prescribing things to her that she go and sit down with a counselor and talk this through. This is a brand new idea. It's unique in human history. That God would become man, humankind, and he would do that the natural way that humans come into the world is amazing. 
It's significant for all kinds of reasons, but the significance it has in Mary's life is that it's sort of ruined her life in the short term, at least socially. It comes with immense cost for her. The beginning of the verses that we read say that around the same time that Mary received word from this angel, she made her way into the hill country with haste. She left home. Maybe she even ran away from home, but she was in a hurry. She was traveling fast. That's a part of her legacy. And she got to Elizabeth, and what do you think she's been doing this whole journey in her heart and mind? She's been rehearsing what she's going to say, right? She came to see her cousin. She knows Elizabeth has a baby. Maybe she thinks she can talk to Elizabeth about the the morning sickness and the contractions that come and go and the the pain that she feels and get a little bit of counsel on how to handle this because she sure can't talk to her mom and dad about it from her perspective. And then as soon as she arrives at Mary's house, I don't want you to miss the significance of the Holy Spirit falling on Elizabeth. Before Mary has an opportunity to dish the dirt, to give her prepared speech, her rehearsed, I didn't do anything wrong, and this is God's baby, and I know that sounds crazy, I think it's crazy too, but here's what the angel said. Before Mary can explain any of that away, Elizabeth is given insight into the truth of Mary's circumstances. And Maybe that seems insignificant to you, but what a loving act on God's part. For Mary to show up ready, poised, aimed, postured to defend herself. And God steals her thunder by the power of the Holy Spirit and allows Elizabeth to say to Mary all of the hard things that Mary's probably scared to death to have to put into words for herself. And then the very last verse that I read to you, verse 45, I want you to look at it again if you would please. Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who believed past tense, that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. I believe first Elizabeth is speaking about herself. She's saying, I did believe that God would do what he said he would do, and here I am witnessing another miracle. It's not just me. This justifies and ratifies that what I'm experiencing is real, but I think she's also speaking prophetically to Mary. Mary, blessed will you be if you believe that God will keep his promises, that he will do what he says. You will be blessed. And then Mary responds. And the reason I give you that background, the reason I want to set that up for you and help you understand that Mary's got this tension, that there's a reason she leaves home to come and meet Elizabeth, is it puts the miracle of this song in perspective for you and I. If you have sort of this like Renaissance painting idea of who Mary is and she's so holy that she's lost her humanity in your mind's eye, then this makes sense, right? She's just this praise and worship robot because her life is amazing and she gets to carry Jesus and that's amazing and what a blessing for her. But that's not true. The song that Mary sings, the Magnificat, one of the most famous songs in the whole Bible, comes from a heart that has just been impacted directly moments before by personal evidence that God cares for her. Through the mouth of her cousin Elizabeth, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, God has met her right where she is, and what does she say? Let's read it. She sings in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's what Magnificat means, I magnify you, O God. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That's the way the ESV translates that. In Greek, the word that's translated as humble estate is maybe better modernized as humiliation. That word is rooted in another Greek word that means depression. This is the reason why I feel certain that Mary came to Elizabeth's house with her head hung low, that she was covered, she felt like, in the mud of other people's decisions, namely God, and that she was dealing with the consequences of a thing that was out, excuse me, outside of her control. She says, the Lord has looked upon the humiliation of his servant, for behold, look, she sings in verse 48, from now on all generations will call me blessed. She's right. 
We do, don't we? I mean, to the point that we've almost taken the humanity out of the equation because we think it's such a miracle that God put a baby inside of this woman who was fully God himself. And we're right, it is a miracle. But Mary is still a young woman. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me and his name is holy, it's set apart. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of, same words, humble estate, those who are humiliated, those who are depressed, he has lifted up. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained there with Elizabeth about three months, or probably about until baby John was due, and then she returned to her home. If I can draw your attention to the structure of the song that Mary sings, I see three subdivisions in this passage. Three parts, if you will. We'll call them movements, because if I call them verses, that's going to get confusing, because there's already verses in the Bible. So I just want to highlight these for you, and if you want to take notes, you can, you can note these in your Bible or write them down. But movement one consists of verses 46 through 49. And to me, this is the personal movement of this song. Mary sings about her own experience. Some of what she says has just happened to her as she stepped through Elizabeth's front door and as she met with the prophetic voice of her cousin under the Holy Spirit's influence. The magnificence of the role that she will play in human history is landing on her, I think, for the very first time. This is the first moment, aside from that treasured moment in her heart, when she met with that angel and he told her what was coming. This is probably the very next time that she's had anything positive going on regarding her immediate future. She realizes that this is a blessing. God is at work. There is a lot that could happen that could go very well for her. She's probably not allowed herself to look past her anxiety about what the pregnancy means for her immediate future, long enough to acknowledge what God is doing on a grand scale. And there's a word for that kind of short-sightedness. We call it being human. Yeah, we get so stuck in what's right in front of our face, the little tiny boxes that need to be checked in order for our lives to stay unchaotic, for all of the dominoes of our plans to fall in the order that they should, and we can't look past that to actually see God's goodness in the world. So what does God do? God sends a very personal messenger to Mary. He draws Mary. She thinks she's running away from her problems. She doesn't realize she's following God's will for her life into his solution for her. She arrives prepared to regain control of a situation, right? To control a relationship. If she can just pitch this at Elizabeth the right way, well, then at least Elizabeth won't write a letter and tell her parents, right? Mary can mitigate the consequences, the damage, the chaos. And yet before she even has a chance to execute that plan, God meets her right where she is and totally diffuses the situation and lifts her spirits. Movement two is verses 50 through 53. We go from personal verses about what God has done for Mary personally into what I'd like to call the cosmic movement of this song. What does Mary know is true about God? She knows that Yahweh, which is the only name of God she would have probably called him by because of the scriptures that she had available, that he's merciful for generations. She's heard these stories before. That he's strong and he uses that strength to oppose the proud, to lift up those who have been humiliated, people just like her. He feeds the hungry and he refuses to deal with those who would use him. Now, like her, most if not all of us know those things to be true as well, right? If I passed out a survey with a lot of different adjectives on it and asked you to circle the ones that describe God, you would circle merciful and strong and caring and loving, 
But in the process of putting pen to paper, would anything happen in your spirit at all? Would your heart cry out, yes, amen, these are true things. Do you have a memory, do you have a moment where God has proven this to you personally? Because if you don't, the cosmic realities of God's love really mean very little to us. We don't cheapen their ultimate value in the universe. They're true and God is who he says he is, but they don't seem to land on us very well unless we've had a personal experience with him first. And I think this is Mary's walk. Mary has now seen God show up and deliver, and because she's seen him on a microscopic scale in her own life, work and act and love, now her mind is going to human history. She's reaching back into the history of Israel. She's about to become very specific in the verses that follow in movement three, but for now she's just remembering the general qualities of God. And the reason that causes her to rejoice is because she can see that the goodness of God that she's experienced personally, it extends past her life. It extends into Zechariah's life and into Elizabeth's life, and it'll extend into baby John's life, and baby Jesus' life, and, and her husband Joseph's life, who Matthew 1 tells us most of, excuse me, Joseph was quietly plotting to divorce his wife because of the social stigma of her being pregnant with somebody else's baby. And an angel came to him and changed his mind. So God is working in her circumstances, but she has to experience that personally first in order for those cosmic truths to land. The cosmic truths matter because the personal love is present. Movement three is verses 54 and 55, and this is the covenant movement. Now Mary sees the significance of God's movement in her life for what it really is. God has always been good to people, and he's always been good on a cosmic level as well. The revelation that comes with Mary's pregnancy is not just more of God's cosmic good, it is the promise of the Messiah of the Old Testament, what the New Testament will call the Christ. She references Abraham by name, which anchors her understanding of what God is doing in her womb to the covenant that God cut with Abraham in Genesis 15, the covenant that would be fulfilled in Jesus, baby Jesus, who's still growing into his humanity in her womb, who is the culmination of God's personal love for her and the culmination of his cosmic love for the universe. This Jesus will heal and bind and restore all things. So Mary first looks up from the wreckage of her own life, and then she recalls that the love that she is experiencing is par for the course of human history. And it is that look back on God's faithfulness that brings her to the true significance of her moment, that she, and I want you to catch this, because here's the advent point of the Magnificat, that Mary is only significant in as much as she is part of Jesus' story. That's it. That's the full rootedness of her significance in human history. She's not a person who ought to be prayed to. She's not a person who carries some additional spiritual significance past the end of her life. She was chosen by God, as is always the case, to bear the fruit of God's will. In her case, that just happens to be the fully God, fully man, Savior of the world. This is the same significance that you and I have or don't have, that we are a part of Jesus' life, a part of his story, a part of his redemptive motion in the world. We also look back at his coming, and we rejoice with Mary, but we look ahead at the assurance of his coming again, and that's what drives us into the life of Christ today. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Our understanding that there's no significance in our lives outside of how we are connected to Jesus, that's what drives our charity. Not that we're nice people and we feel guilty because we have too much stuff at Christmas time. That's what drives our giving. That's what drives our care. It doesn't just drive those things from 12-1 to 12-31. It drives those things 12 months a year, 365. 
Our selflessness, our sense of peace, our sense of value, all of these things are the fruit born out of a Jesus-shaped inner life. And this has always been true for Jesus' disciples. And so I have good news for you. If all of those ideas seem too lofty, you can't reach them, you can't seem to manufacture them, you can't force yourself to be a way that you're not, even though maybe you've learned to act nice from going to church for a long time, your starting place can be exactly where Mary's starting place was this Advent. Anxious, worried about the future, the social stigma of some decision you've made or you need to make, and you're worried about how people are going to react and respond to that at work or in your family or your neighbors, your spouse. Depressed, humiliated, certain that things can only get worse from here. Maybe you have been hurrying into the hills today in order to try to get away from whatever that reality is in your life. Because there's a special kind of worry (laughs) that comes from knowing that you're going to be spending extended amounts of time with people who you love, but maybe you don't like that much. Or you don't like their ideas. Or you don't like their perspective. Or the way things are when they just come out of their mouth. They just seem to hurt you, maybe. And we begin to anticipate that, right? We've had enough evidence. We've interacted with Aunt Marge on Facebook all 2021. And we know what bullets are in her social gun that she's bringing to the table at Christmas, right? We know the commentary she's going to have on all kinds of stuff that's hot-button issues. And what we don't do, church, is we make no spiritual sacrifice about that. We just put that in our backpack, and it weighs us down, and we just slog through the holidays, scared to death, that eventually she's going to say a thing that we don't know how to respond to. We don't pray about it at all. It's fully disconnected from who we are in Christ. In some ways, and this is the great irony, excuse me, irony of Western Christmas is that we lose our Christian perspective because of the way that our culture and society have hijacked a holiday from us. We're so worried about all of the social expectations that our Christianity goes in the back seat until January 1st. This is not God's plan for our lives. It's not his call. But let me comfort your heart. Because Mary is carrying Jesus in her womb, and she's still running from her problems. So if you are running from your problems, maybe I can be your Elizabeth today. Maybe that's all this is for you. Maybe you came because you love the Belmores. Maybe you don't even know who they are, and that was a weird thing that we prayed for them. I don't know what your perspective is. I loved it, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. But if I can be a person who can say to you, as you come into this room anticipating some kind of fight coming in your future, let me just call out to you, on behalf of the God of the universe and his Holy Spirit, that blessed are they who believe that God will do what he says. This has been true for me. I can say it past tense. Blessed have I been, as God has delivered on every promise he's ever made me, but he will deliver on the promises he has made you. And those promises are simple things like peace that you can't manufacture in your own life. A thick skin. Becoming a person who's very hard to offend. You know that that's part of the Christian life, right? When Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek, that's not just a thing you can white-knuckle your way through. That's a product of the maturity of your inner life, your spiritual in-syncness with God. He can do that for you. He can give you love for people whose ideas you hate. He can give you peace as you navigate airports and 25-hour flight days to get back to the East Coast to see the people that you love. He can be with your kids when they break down and freak out because they have to travel and they've worn a mask too long and they've been awake too long and they didn't get what they wanted for Christmas. And these are all things I think that we begin to just build up and anticipate. They're the punchline of every Christmas movie that we ever watch and we disciple ourselves to think that this is a really negative season. But there's joy for you. Mary's song teaches our wicked hearts 
that the humble estate of his servants can be exalted. Mary was low when she got to Liz's house that day, and now she sees that God is alive, that he is at work, and she sings, Almighty God has done something big for me, and he is uniquely set apart to continue to do good for me. So let that change your tune, the song that your heart is singing in the Advent season. Look up, see Jesus' love for you personally, and if you would pray, would you involve Jesus in your Advent? Would you speak to him about the burdens that you're bearing? Read his word, hear his cosmic commitments to you, to all of mankind, to save and deliver and heal. And then if you can, and this is the point of the Advent, I hope you'll see Jesus. I hope like that star over Bethlehem, you will see Jesus pierce the darkness of your life and shine. And that that light will give you hope. Not false hope, but hope that Jesus, who is the culmination of redemptive history, the one who came and is coming again, keeps his promises. My hope for us is that Mary's song will be a magnificat for our modern souls, our modern problems, and that we may enter together today into a season of remembering and anticipating how Jesus will make all things new. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the wisdom of church fathers and church mothers who thought to put the significance of this season on a calendar. I don't think they could have anticipated thousands of years ago how clockwork our lives would be, how date and time-based every movement of our lives would be, God. And so we find ourselves now in sync with a larger story, in sync with a more important narrative than getting gifts bought and taking advantage of Cyber Monday and Black Friday and booking plane tickets and booking hotel rooms and navigating who's going to be where and why for how long. I pray, God, that we would align ourselves not with the rhythm of consumerism, the rhythms of culture, the rhythms of American myth that makes Christmas happy and shallow, but that we would put ourselves in step with your spirit, God, the ancient rhythms of anticipation, of waiting, of being willing to live in the darkness because we believe the light is coming, even if we can't see it yet. And I pray today that we would, that this first Sunday of Advent, God, we would see a glimmer of hope on the horizon, the beginnings of a sunrise in our lives, and that it wouldn't be about our future prosperity, God, but it would be about your spirit's presence healing us, shaping us, making us new. We love you, God, as we now return praise to you in song. I ask that you would inspire and fill these words with meaning for us, that we would be singing testimony to you and to one another. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.